Well, thank you, Colin, for the welcome. And uh, thank you, too, for the opportunity to have this uh, time to be with you and to speak on this subject, um, the application of Christianity to all of life or a Christian world and life view. And I want us to, to just begin with scripture, to give uh, some scriptural mirrorings to what I'm going to say. And our first uh, reading is Colossians 1. Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20. And I'm reading here from the English Standard Version of the Scriptures. Of Christ, we read from verse 15 of Colossians 1. (coughs) He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And then to the Psalms, to Psalm 148. All things were created by him. We read in, or through him, in Colossians 1. And now we see the whole creation in Psalm 148, is called to praise him, to magnify him, to glorify him. And notice uh, as we read how each aspect of creation is called upon to praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters from the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. And he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind, fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children, Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. A Christian worldview or the application of Christianity to all of life. We are living in a cultural climate in Western Europe 
in which Christianity is being increasingly marginalised. In fact, we could use the term that was popular with the Thatcher era regarding business. Christianity is being privatised. In other words, society is saying to the Christian, you can practice your Christianity within the four walls of your home, but don't. Don't bring it with you into work. Keep it out of politics. Never allow it to influence your sporting activities. And at all costs, at all costs, keep it out of the classroom and the lecture room. And with respect to science in general and medical ethics in particular, our society is saying Christianity should not be given breathing space. Nor should Christianity be allowed to be freely expressed within the home. If parents have Christian convictions, our society is beginning to say that they should keep these to themselves. Professing atheists like Richard Dawkins has said, parents who teach their children about God and Jesus Christ and the way of salvation and Christian values are guilty of child abuse. In fact, I read recently that a Christian couple were rejected as foster parents because of their Christian belief and practice. So the cultural, philosophical and political climate in which we live and work and bring up our children is becoming increasingly hostile to bringing Christianity into the public square and is beginning to question the suitability of parents who bring up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. How are some Christians reacting to this hostility? Sadly and grievously, some, if not many, are being intimidated by it and have to a greater or lesser extent become secret disciples. This, of course, is nothing new. Remember Joseph of Arimathea. We read of him in John 19, verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. So he was intimidated from outwardly expressing his Christian faith because of the hostility of the Jews. During our Lord's public ministry, we read in John 7, verse 13, Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him, intimidated into a guilty silence. Well, how are we to react to this frontal attack, to the intimidating tactics that are being used against openly professing our allegiance to Christ? Intimidating tactics that are trying to keep us from applying Christianity to all of life so that we have a consistent Christian world and life view. Well, we need first of all to have a robust theological foundation. We need to have a robust theological foundation if we're going to be with a, enabled to withstand such an attack. We need to ask some questions. 
On what biblical grounds are we to assert that Christianity is to be applied to all of life? Is there any basis for making the following distinction that is often made that life consists of two main categories, either the sacred or the secular? Are those distinctions valid? I trust these questions will be answered as we explore the Word of God and apply its teaching. So under this uh, first main heading about needing a robust theological foundation, we note, first of all, that everything is created by Christ. Everything is created by Christ. It is clear from the New Testament that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, was the active agent in the creation of the universe. I'm not denying the fact that the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were all involved, but Jesus Christ is given the credit, the honor of being the active agent in creation. Two references clearly and emphatically teach this. John 1, 1 to 3, familiar words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. And then a couple of verses that we read in Colossians 1, 15 and 16. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Now a question that we might ask at this point is this, why? Why did Christ create the universe? After all, a God is all-sufficient, all-sufficient in and of himself. He did not need to create the universe and everything in it. So why did he? Well, there's only one satisfactory and sufficient answer and that is to, to glorify himself, to bring glory and honour to his name. And note, going back to the end of that verse, verse 16 of Colossians 1, all things were created through him and for him, for his honour, for his glory. Let's explore that a little further. Everything created by Christ now uh, second subheading, everything created for Christ, for his glory. Psalm 19 begins with the words, The heavens declare the glory of God. So the, the, the heavens, uh, the skies above us, uh, sun, moon and stars, they declare the glory of their creator. And this is defined in greater detail in Psalm 148 where different aspects of the created universe are called to praise and glorify the name of the Lord. Mention is made of the angelic host in verse 2, the heavenly bodies, bodies in verse 3, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars in verse 9, and then verse 11, uh, all kings and princes and rulers and all peoples to praise and magnify, without exception, Verse 5, for let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded 
and they were created. So a link between the one who created them and why they were created, to praise him, to honour him, to glorify him. And to Psalm 148, we could also add 1 Peter 4 and 11. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, in order that in everything, without exception, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To glorify God, then, from these references and many others beside them, we see that there is an obligation resting upon the whole created order, an obligation to glorify God, to glorify Christ, and that includes mankind. All men were created by God. They have been made in his image. And therefore, they are under a special obligation to glorify the one whose image they bear. The compilers of the Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Divines in the 1640s, recognized the importance of this. Since the first question that they formulated in the Shorter Catechism was this, what is man's chief end? What is the chief purpose of man in this world? The answer is simple. Man's chief end, man's chief purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Does this apply to, to non-Christians? It's obvious, I think, that it does, but, but uh, that's the kind of question that is likely to be asked. And the answer that I give you is decidedly yes. Because the non-Christian, the unbeliever, has been made by God, has been made in the image of God, and even though that image is marred by sin, it is still there, and he is under an obligation uh, to glorify God. And we can see that in Scripture. Uh, one pagan Babylonian king by the name of Belshazzar was rebuked because he did not order his kingdom in a way that glorified God. Daniel 5 and verses 22 and 23. I'm quoting from the New King James Version. But you, son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this, and you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God, the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. You have not glorified. So pagan king Belshazzar, who was dependent upon God for the breath that he breathed, was condemned because he did not glorify God. We come to the same conclusion when we turn to Romans 1 and verse 21. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were hardened. Uh, the wicked, unbelieving world, although they knew God, 
because God is evident from the created universe and from uh, conscience within us, they did not glorify him as God. And so one of the reasons Christ will give for condemning the wicked, the ungodly, the unbeliever on the day of judgment is that during their time on earth they did not glorify him. To glorify Christ in all aspects of life then becomes a major privilege that the Christian must embrace, that the Christian must seek to carry out, right down to the most mundane things of life. And it's put very simply and succinctly in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So whether you're driving the car or whether you're, you're sitting at your office desk or whether you're on the telephone talking to a friend or whether you're playing a football match or a hockey match or whether you're engaging in some political debate, do all to the glory of God. And we should think of that every time we sit down to eat. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything created by Christ, everything created for Christ. Well, then we want to take this a stage further and laying this robust theological foundation. And we see, thirdly, that everything in creation is subject to Christ's authority. Everything in creation is subject to Christ's authority. Is Jesus, Christ, <coughs> is Jesus Christ Lord of the individual only in his private world? Is he Lord only of the church or the believers in the church when they worship? Or is he Lord of all? In other words, can we, can we, can we uh, support this division in, in society between the sacred and the secular? Is it valid? Is that a valid distinction? <coughs> is there such a thing as a sacred world over which Christ exercises his dominion and a secular world which can legitimately exclude him? To answer these crucial and fundamental questions, we again must turn to the Scriptures. And we turn this time to, to Psalm 2, although there are many Scriptures that we could turn to, but this Psalm uh, puts it all in close compass. And uh, it would be useful to turn, if we all turn to this Psalm, we'll be dwelling on it for a, a, a minute or two. <clears throat> In this Psalm, verses 1 to 3, summarize for us the hostility of the world against the Lord. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So we see here, uh, the hostility of the, the ungodly and wicked world against God and against his anointed. Who is uh, his anointed? Well, it's an Old Testament word from which we get 
the New Testament word Christ. So here is a, a reference to, to God the Father and to God the Son. And expressed in these three verses is the belligerent, antagonistic, malevolent attitude of the unbelieving world to God. But as you notice from verse 4, God is not in the least perturbed. He laughs. And then he addresses the world and informs the world that he has created, that he has formed for his own glory. In verse 6, he says, As for me, I have set my king upon my holy hill. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Again, this begs the question, who is this king? Well, in verse 7, this king speaks and reveals his identity. He says, the Lord said to me, you are my son. So what we have from verses 7 to 9 is the son reporting what the father said to him. There's no doubt about our interpretation because these verses are cited in the New Testament as referring uh, to the Son of God, to Jesus Christ. For example, in Acts 13, verse 33, This he has fulfilled to us, thus he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And there are several other references to this text in Hebrews and in the book of Revelation. The conclusion of the psalm is an appeal from God the Holy Spirit to all kings, to all rulers, to serve the Lord, to kiss the Son, to do homage to the Son, to recognize his authority and to order their lives and their kingdoms accordingly. Another Old Testament passage which speaks prophetically of Christ's universal dominion is Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Daniel in a night vision is given the following revelation. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. This is the, the Son coming to the Father. And then we read, And to him, to the Son, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. Not, not some believing minority, but all peoples, all nations and languages should serve him. This promise of God the Father to God the Son, which we find in verse 2, that he would give the nations as his inheritance, and in Daniel 7, that he would be given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and in many other Old Testament scriptures and New Testament scriptures, find fulfillment in Christ when he triumphed over Satan, <clears throat> and all the demonic forces at the cross. And after the resurrection and before his, dis his ascension, Christ said uh, these words to his disciples. And bear in mind Psalm 2 and bear in mind Daniel 7. Christ said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Matthew 28 verse 18. 
And the next verse begins with the word, therefore. Go, therefore, on the basis of his sovereignty as mediator, he commissions the disciples, he commissions the church to disciple the nations for him, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Referring to Christ's authority, Dr. Mackay has written, It is the supreme authority of Christ that ensures the effective preaching of the gospel in spite of the opposition of rulers and peoples to that message. The rule of Christ over the kings of the earth is explicitly stated in Revelation 1 verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. The ruler of kings on earth. Christ is a ruler, and his subjects are the kings of the earth not merely in their private capacity as men, but in their official status as governing officials in nation-states. The sovereignty of Christ is clearly stated in other texts and contexts. Uh, I refer you to, to four others. Um, Matthew, sorry, Philippians 2, uh, 9 to 11, where we see that as a consequence of his humiliation uh, and suffering death, death on a cross, Christ, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that Jesus Christ is Lord. Philippians 2 verse 9, therefore, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, Every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Ephesians 1 20 to 23. Referring to God's power that he worked in Christ, verse 20, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet <coughs> and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Colossians 1 verse 18, that he might in all things have the preeminence. So we've established the, the lordship of Christ over all creation, over all the universe. So what are the implications? Well, it has implications for, for the church. The Lordship of Christ is a truth which embraces and affects and governs many other truths. It means that his people in the church are not free to decide on matters of doctrine, church government or worship according to their own likes or dislikes. In all these areas they are to be subject 
to the clear instructions which our Lord has left in his word. He has given these instructions for the good of his people and for his glory, so that it might so that it would be both arrogant and foolish to replace them with private ideas. And the same principle which applies to the church applies to every aspect of human existence. There is no area of life which is beyond the bounds of his rightful authority. And so, friends, there is no distinction such as sacred and secular. With reference to to the discussion that we're having this morning, these terms should become redundant because all of life comes under the dominion of Christ. Abram Kuyper, a famous Dutch theologian and politician of over a century ago, made the following remark, There is not a thumbnail of this universe that is outside or beyond the sovereign rule of Christ. So having, uh, I, I trust, established a robust theological foundation for making an application of Christianity to all of life, then we, we want to look at the practical details and we do so under this heading. We need faithfully and courageously to acknowledge the rule of Christ the King. We need faithfully and courageously to acknowledge the rule of Christ the King. When we think of our own society, we must ask the question, what are the implications of the universal rule of Christ over our society? And two implications quickly spring to mind. There is, first of all, recognition, and then submission. Recognition. Our nation and its institutions need to recognize the rule of Christ. They need to recognize the rule of Christ throughout our society, from the family to the farm to the factory, from the school to the sports field. All of society needs to recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord and that all of life is to be lived for his glory. But recognition is not sufficient. Recognition is one thing. Submission is another. Remember, Jesus said on one occasion, Luke 6, 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? And a parallel passage is Matthew 7, 21 to 23. So there was recognition. There was a calling Jesus, Lord, Lord, recognizing his authority, but not submitting to that authority not doing what he said. So the implications of the Lordship of Christ must be worked out for every sphere of human existence. For the individual, I must submit to him as Lord in obedience, in the family, in the church, in the nation, and all aspects of life within the nation. For example, the relationship between husband and wife must be ordered according to Christ's teaching in Ephesians 5, 25 to 33, how husbands and wives are to relate to each other. 
and children to parents, Ephesians 6, 1 to 4. And that applies whether uh, husbands and wives believe or whether it's a believing family. That's the principle. That's how to recognize Christ's lordship. The farmer must recognize Christ's sovereignty when conducting his business as a farmer. To farm in a way that honors Christ, that pleases Christ, that glorifies Christ, whether he's a believer or unbeliever. Professor Roland Moss, writing of the farmer's responsibility, pointed out, Man holds his brother, his crops, and his animals, and his land, and its resources in trust, or on lease from God. He requires responsible, wise, and conservative use and care of all that he has provided. I am my brother's keeper, and I am responsible for my land and its resources, not only for the present, but also for future generations. In education, from primary right through to third level education, the whole curriculum should be taught in a manner consistent with truth, consistent with the word of God revealed in the scriptures. That's obvious with respect to biology. Yes, reference can be made to the theory of Charles Darwin. It's, it's, it's something that, that has to be brought into the subject. But what is pressed upon the pupils is the, the teaching that is consistent with Genesis and the rest of Scripture. And the same is true with geology and with geography and with history. History is the unfolding of God's purposes through time. Geography embraces many subjects. One teacher was telling me recently that in the curriculum he is forced to teach something that he doesn't believe in, that our ancestors were cavemen, very primitive, and knew very little, whereas the Bible tells us that our first parents and their descendants were very cultured and very very full of all great ability because they were made in the image of God. And so uh, all of these subjects are affected uh, by, by Christianity and ought to be taught in such a manner. In the practice of law, solicitors should act in a manner consistent with the mind and will of Christ. In divorce cases, clients could only be represented who are seeking divorce on biblical grounds. In the medical profession, doctors and nurses must carry out their duties consistent with the sanctity of human life. In politics, members of parliament need to recognize the lordship of Christ and seek to govern in such a way as is consistent with the will of Christ revealed in the scriptures. And that obligation is upon them, whether they believe or whether they disbelieve. And they may say, well, that doesn't apply to me because... I'm not a believer, well, that won't carry on the day of judgment because that is their responsibility before Christ. This will have implications on a whole range of issues uh, which you do not need for me to tell you. Uh, the sanctity of the Lord's day, the protection of the unborn child, uh, the prohibition of gambling. It's particularly obnoxious that our present government not only permits gambling on a whole scale, but, but actually organizes gambling that it might profit from it, uh, like the national lottery and premium bonds, etc. 
the criminal justice system should operate according to God's word to bring glory to Christ. Evildoers should experience retributive punishment from the state. The concept in the word of God that the punishment should fit the crime. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That's the application of justice with regard to the state. Instead, what we have is remedial punishment. Punishment designed to make the criminal a better person through education, through sport, through recreation. Or preventative punishment, where punishment is only meted out to provide a deterrent to others. The whole idea of retributive punishment is obnoxious to our present uh, criminal justice system. And because of that, Biblical justice is more or less forsaken, and we could go on. In everything we have mentioned so far in working out a Christian world and life view, obedience to the word of God is paramount. There are other areas of life on this earth where God does not explicitly teach Christian practice. For example, in areas like music or painting or gardening or writing, whether it be prose or poetry, drama, uh, sculpture, recreation or clothing. However, we establish a Christian world and life view by doing or practicing these things to the glory of God. The question is, how do we write music to the glory of God? Or how do we do any of these things to the glory of God? Well, that would take some time to tease it out, but let's just look at one or two. Uh, For example, music. Music can either be written in a manner which reflects order and harmony, which is known as concordant music. And this is consistent with a God of order, a God of harmony. Johann Sebastian Bach uh, signed his musical scores SDG, Soli Dea Gloria, to the glory of God alone. In other words, Bach had the glory of God in mind when he was composing his music. The other kind of music is music written in discord with clashing sounds, reflecting the anarchy and the rebellion of the composer. Found in in many modern composers in the last few decades, such as punk rock and heavy metal, Uh, and such like. Painting follows the same pattern. There is painting that reflects God's order in creation. And then there is painting that reflects anarchy and rebellion, depicting chaos and meaninglessness. In other words, depicting the philosopher of the painter. And we could work out the same for drama and for poetry and for sculpture. Uh, sculpture, there's sculpture that I enjoy that I think reflects the glory of God and then there's sculpture that is, is absolutely meaningless that's cropping up all over our cities. The universe in which we live is in itself an art form. When we think of the variety and beauty of the scenery in various parts of the world, not least from the part of the world that I come from, Matthew, you would agree with that, 
Psalm 19 tells us in that the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim his handiwork. And as we look out in the autumn scenes, that uh, testifies for itself. As creatures made in the image of God, when we attempt to be creative by using the materials that God has given us, our so-called creations should proclaim the glory of God. Now, by, by way of conclusion, when we understand that the duty of the universe is to glorify Christ, and when we truly understand uh, the universal lordship of Christ, we are led to the conclusion, the inescapable conclusion, that life and all its institutions should be in submission to Christ, that life and all its art forms should reflect the glory of Christ. And when we seek to do this consistently, we will have what is called a Christian world and life view. We will see that Christianity ought to be applied to all of life. When we understand this, then we will have courage to stand up to the enemies of God, to the enemies of his Son, Jesus Christ. By the grace of God, if we have this robust world and life view, we will not be intimidated by the opponents of Christianity. And we will be prepared to suffer, even facing fines and imprisonment, and ultimately death for the honour and glory of our illustrious and ever-reigning King, Jesus Christ. During the height of the persecution in Scotland in the 17th century, one of the indulged ministers, William Vallant, or Villant, he came into contact with the field preacher, Donald Cargill. Villant had accepted a compromise with the government uh, and was allowed back into his pulpit. And he was otherwise a, a godly man and uh, he had the opportunity now to preach the gospel. But the other, uh, Cargill, remained true to his biblical principles and was hunted and harried like a criminal and eventually hung on the scaffold at the market, at the grass market in Edinburgh. And they met one day and William Villant said to Donald Cargill, What needs all this ado? We will get heaven and you will get no more. Cargill paused and then he gave this noble reply. Yes, we will get more. We will get God glorified on earth, which is more than heaven. We should never be forced to do anything which is contrary to the mind and will of Christ. The state should never force us to do anything that will not honour and glorify our Saviour and our King. Like the disciples, there will be occasions when we will have to say to the state, to its educators and to its political practitioners, we ought to obey God rather than men. Amen. Thank you for listening.